So today we're in a, a bit of a gap in our series because we wrapped up our series on 1 Peter last week. Sarah Hammond wrapped up the series there in 1 Peter 5, did an unbelievable job with it. Sarah is a wonderful preacher. And then we will start our yearly Advent series in December as we prepare ourselves to welcome baby Jesus into the world. And that means we've got kind of two standalone sermons here for the next two weeks. And so I, I thought I'd start things off today with, uh, well, it's a bit of a mind-reading trick of sorts. Does this sound Okay. Well, I hope so. I've got the microphone, so that's, that's what we're going to do. Um, I want you to think of a number. Okay, Any number. No, not any number. I, I want you to think of a number, a specific number. I want you to think about how much money you would need to make a year in order to consider yourself rich. Okay? Probably don't want to say it out loud, <laughs> but uh, come up with a number <clears throat> as specific as possible. If I just made blank dollars a year, then I'd be rich. I'll give you a couple seconds to come up with it, as specific as possible. Okay. You got it? All right. Now let me get it from you. Oh, Doug. Mm, okay. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. So is your number, is the amount of money that you would need to make a year in order to consider yourself rich, is it somewhere around double whatever you currently make? Hmm? Oh, did I get you? Channeling the dark arts here this morning at Vista? No, it's not, not black magic, no dark arts. It's just psychology, actually. Uh, a few years ago, Gallup conducted this survey where they were trying to see how different socioeconomic groups thought about being rich. And the rather hilarious finding was that basically everybody on every point of the economic pyramid thought that they would be rich if they could just make Double whatever they currently make. Okay, so somebody making 25,000 a year thought, man, I'd be rich if I could make 50,000 a year. Somebody making 50, if I could just make 100. Somebody making $500,000 a year thought they'd be rich if they could just make a million dollars a year. Then I could finally be rich. On and on and on it goes with the surface level moral of the story being that conveniently enough, nobody ever thinks they're rich. But with the deeper moral of the story being, I think that there is something deeply deceptive about the way money deforms our perception because there's something about money that makes it really hard for us to see things as they really are. Well, for another case in point, consider the economic woes of millennials. It's a generational cohort defined as those born roughly between 1980 and 1994. Any millennials in the room born between 80 and 94? I'm a millennial. We're a great group. Um, if you haven't heard, um, man, um, we've really drawn the short straw when it comes to finances. And I want to talk about it for a second because it feels good. Um, we make way less money than all previous generations did at our age. And so that's why we're having less kids. You're always on us about birth rate, blah, blah, blah. It's because we can't afford these kids. So we don't make enough money and we can't buy houses. And frankly, it's all your fault, boomers. I don't mean to lay it at anybody's feet, but it's really, it's really mainly your fault. Uh, as millennial author Jill Filipovich puts it in her book called OK Boomer, Let's Talk, <clears throat> we're only now starting to grasp the degree to which we millennials have gotten screwed. Her word, not mine. And we're responding with desperation and sometimes anger. That's where the phrase OK Boomer comes from. It is a final frustrated dismissal from people suffering years of political and economic neglect. Now, as a fellow millennial, I completely agree with everything that Pilpovich has said, and I too am tired of drawing the economic short straw. I'm tired of being financially left behind. That's the way I see it. And the only problem with how I see it is 
that is basically completely wrong because as it turns out, not only are millennials not doing worse economically than all previous American generations at the same age, but it's kind of embarrassing, but we're actually doing quite a bit better than all previous generations are doing at the same age. For example, check this graph out. Uh, it shows that uh, we actually make more, and yes, finance people, this is adjusted for inflation, okay? Adjusted for inflation, we know. Then all the previous generations were actually making more, and this is not just true at like the high end of the economic continuum, but the low end, as well as the percentage of millennials who are living in poverty is actually lower than it was in all previous generations as well. So uh, as it turns out, my bad. Um, <clears throat> and so given that millennials are actually, I, we're doing pretty relatively well financially, uh, how did this narrative take hold that we're doing so poorly? It's all the boomers' fault. Well, once again, you see how psychology shapes reality. Profoundly so, especially when it comes to money. Here's how Jean Twinkie summarizes it. She says, the classic formula says that happiness equals reality minus expectations. That's a great definition, by the way. So if expectations are high and millennial expectations were sky high because our parents told us we'd be running the world by the time we were 25, then reality won't measure up even if it's pretty good because even good outcomes can be disappointing if they don't meet expectations. And so once again, the moral of the story is that money has a habit of making it really hard for us to see things as they really are. And that's a really big problem. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to Malachi 3. It's the last book in the Old Testament, probably about the last page in your Old Testament there. And it is a, uh, a classic, and I must warn you, very blunt text about money and possessions and stuff and the different perceptions that God and we have on it all. Okay, so be up here on the screen. You can read along <clears throat> if you'd like. Uh, Malachi 3, verses 1 through 12. It says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when God appears? For he's like refiners, fire, and like fullers. So... He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment and I will be a swift witness against these sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, you are not consumed. Now from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and you have not kept them. So return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, well, how shall we return? Well, will a man rob God? And yet you're robbing me. But you say, well, how have we robbed you? Well, in tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now on this, says the Lord. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will the vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. 
Okay, Malachi 3, 1 through 12. Malachi is an interesting, not super read, little prophetic book that is structured with this very distinct formula that you see all through the book where God will offer like an assertion. God will say something. And then the people of Israel will respond with this question that's actually a veiled rebuttal. You know what I mean? Don't you love those? It's a question, but it's really a rebuttal. And then God will respond to that rebuttal with a clarifying statement that proves how his original statement still holds true. So, for example, the book starts out with this exchange in verses 2 through 5. Okay, so God says to Israel, I've loved you. And Israel responds, well, how have you loved us, God? We don't feel very loved. And God responds, what? I judged the Edomites for you. They really sucked, and I sorted them out for you. And so that's, that's how I've loved you. Okay, so this is the basic exchange we see all throughout the book. Here in chapter 3, we have some similar rhetorical, like jousting, wherein God and Israel are arguing about whether or not God has been unfaithful to Israel or Israel has been unfaithful to God and how they can get past this impasse in their relationship. And so in verses 6 through 7, God asserts his faithfulness by stating that Israel's very existence is due to God's faithfulness and not Israel's because Israel has not been particularly faithful. Okay, and so verse 6, God says, From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and you have not kept them. God then follows this up with a reasonable suggestion. I think return to me and then I'll return to you. And that does, that seems reasonable to me. Does that seem reasonable to anyone else? Return to me, I return to you. Sounds reasonable to me. But if any of you have ever argued with your children, as God is here, um, then you know that reason rarely prevails. And so rather than just taking the L, kids never want to take the L with their parents, um, Israel offers this rebuttal in the form of this very petulant, childish question, where they ask God, well, okay, you say that we should return to you. Well, how then should we return to you? And I don't know what kind of answer they were expecting. But I do not think they were expecting God to go this hard in the paint, right? Because God goes pretty hard. God says, oh, you want to know how you should return to me? You just can't even, you know, come up with anything in your mind for what you could do to return to me. All right, let me help you out here. I would like you to return to me by stopping robbing me. Now, I do not believe in reincarnation. But I could swear that God is arguing with my kids here because they refuse to back down. And they still offer another question. They want to argue about it more. And it's like, okay, God, we're robbing you. How exactly are we robbing you, God? At this point, you can tell God just had enough. And God's like, oh, you really want to do this, huh? Like, we're going to do the whole thing right now. We're just going to take the gloves off and do the whole thing. All right. You asked, I'm going to tell you. Here's how you're robbing me. You're robbing me in tithes and offerings. That's what God says. Now, I know that we got a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds here at the Vista. It's one of the things I love about our church. And so when we hear you know, the phrase tithes and offerings, I know that a lot of us hear a lot of different things. And so do a little bit of background here. The word here translated to tithe is the Hebrew word ma'aser. It's been a while since I've had Hebrew, but something like that. And it basically means a tenth, right? So tithe from ma'aser, which means a tenth. Um, the concept of the tithe stretches back very deep into Israel's history. In Genesis 14, Abraham promises a tenth of his spoils of war to this king named Melchizedek. Later in Genesis 28, Jacob promises God uh, a tenth back of what God gives him, promises to give him after this dream that he has at Bethel. And so from these precedents, a tradition built up around the tithe, wherein it was understood that God expected Israel to give a tenth of everything that they had which for an ancient Israelite was mainly what? 
produce, right? It was crops and animals and fruit. They didn't have a lot of Bitcoin or stock options, you know, to give the Lord. And so it was stuff. They would give a tenth of their stuff to the Lord. Uh, Moses talks about this in Leviticus 27, Numbers 18, Deuteronomy 14. In some detail, you can take a picture of that or write those down or go back and do your homework later on those verses if you want. There's a lot there. It's tough to completely sort out. But what appears clear enough is that there was this regular tithe that they were expected to give to the temple to support the priest and the work of the temple. And then there was this, we'll call it a festival tithe that was given to fund the various communal feasts, the religious feasts that the Israelites would have, right? All that food and drink had to come from somewhere, came from the tithe. And then there was what we might call like a charity tithe that was taken up every three years to make sure that the vulnerable in the community, the widows, the orphans, the immigrants were taken care of. Uh, It's tough to sort out whether this was one single tithe that was put to three different usage or whether it was three distinct tithes. But what is clear is that an ancient Israelite was expected to give between 10 and to be precise, 23.3% of his or her income back to God primarily in the form of giving to the temple, which was the center of ancient life, and the understanding that this tithe would be used to invest in the community's mission, worship, maintenance, witness in the world. All right, so that's a brief history of the tithe. There you go, pretty painless, wasn't it? And it brings us this very important and somewhat stubborn question, though, of why? Right, why would a God who needs nothing, who is incapable of needing anything. Ask us to give him something, anything. Why would God do that? Well, first off, the tithe was an act of remembrance, wherein God invited his people to remember that no matter how hard they had worked for their crops, and you think you work hard, imagine being an ancient farmer. No matter how hard they had worked for their crops, they had still received all of it as a gift because the Psalm 24 verse 1 reminds us the earth is the Lord's and all it contains all is a very comprehensive word yes it was a reminder that no matter how much they felt like they had earned all this stuff imagine how hard they worked for this stuff I know how hard a lot of you have worked for a lot of your stuff no matter how hard you worked for it it was still all a gift because your very existence was a gift because look sure You can work a field. You can work a field really hard. You can work a field well. You can work a field, but can you make a field? Can you make a field? We had a farmer in the first service randomly sitting in the front row. He assured me you cannot, right? I'm not saying clear a field, okay? I'm not saying cultivate a field. I'm saying can you make a field? Well, no, because technically speaking, humans can't make anything because what we call making is actually just what? It's just us moving around things that have already been made, right? We call it making so we make ourselves feel good about ourselves. No human has ever made anything. You can't make a feel. And this means that dependence is the truest thing about you, which means that gratitude is the best thing for you. And so we give back to God from what God has given us in order to remember that everything we have, hear me on this, everything we have, no matter how hard we have worked for it, It's all still a gift. And if you find that hard to believe, man, and I get it, I find it hard to believe, but if you find it hard to believe, then you know what that means, right? It means you have not fully understood the situation you have found yourself in as a human. It means you're living in denial about your dependence. Because my man, you are dependent 
all the way down. And this helps us understand why God uses this really confrontational language, right? It is very confrontational. Um, This language of robbing to describe Israel's economic unfaithfulness because Israel, dare I say, like many of us, had somehow come to believe that tithing was an act whereby we, when we can, we graciously give God some of what is ours. And so God ramps up the rhetoric and God says, no, 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 no. That's not what tithing is. Rather, tithing is you giving me back from what is mine, it's not yours, as a reminder that everything you have, no matter how hard you have worked for it, it is all mine. In other words, God does not see our failure to tithe as a failure to be as generous as we should probably be when we can. Rather, God sees our failure to tithe as what? Robbery is what God says is us robbing him. So God tells us to tithe the cultivate gratitude through remembrance of our dependence. Okay, Clear enough, not fun, but clear enough. And then there's this other why question that needs to be addressed, and it's why God expects our tithing to take this particular form. Okay, and here's what I mean. So God wants us to give to cultivate gratitude and remembrance of our dependence. That's clear enough. But how exactly do you like give something to God. You ever thought about that? So let's pretend you're an ancient Israelite, okay, and you have 10 baby goats. What's a baby goat called? I'm gonna call it a goatling. Um, <laughs> not a farmer. You get 10 goatlings. I like goatling more than kid. We're gonna stick with goatling. But I think you're right. I do think it is a kid. So you got one of these uh, goatlings, and you wanna give, we'll call him Sammy, and you know you need to give Sammy to the Lord. That's the least you can do. And so how are you going to do that? How are you going to give Sammy to the Lord? Are you going to walk to the top of the tallest mountain in the area and you know, throw him, you're going to throw him up there and hope the Lord catches him? My bad, Sammy. Turns out maybe there was another way. What are you going to do? Well, for an ancient Israelite, their tithing took the specific form of giving a tenth of their produce to the temple because it was understood that a tithe given to the temple was a tithe given to God because the temple was the center of God's action in the world. It was the primary place where worship, care for the poor, the general social maintenance of the community happened. And um, this is where things get a little bit complicated for modern Christians. Because while the church is obviously the closest comp we have for the temple, it's not a perfect comp. Because for various reasons, it is difficult for modern Christians to see and sense and feel the centrality of the church in the same way that an ancient Israelite would have seen and sensed and felt the centrality of the temple. There are a number of reasons for this. We don't have time to go into all of them this morning, but there are three really important ones that I do think we need to highlight. First off, modern people are just generally less sure about God. We've discussed this at length. And so they're obviously going to be less sure of giving to the church, right? That, that makes sense. If the church is centered around this belief in God, it makes sense that as modern people believe in God less, they're going to give less to the church. It makes sense. Second, as I've noted uh, numerous times over the years, modern people are increasingly skeptical of institutions across the board. I've told you before that American trust in its major public institutions is at a record low for every single public institution. Government, police, church, like you name it, just not trusting the institutions is kind of our thing, if you haven't noticed. And so it makes sense that we would be increasingly skeptical of giving to the church that we're increasingly skeptical of as an institution because we are increasingly skeptical of all institutions. What we would replace them with, we do not know. We just know we are skeptical of them. 
And then third, and closely related, modern Christians are thus very pragmatic in our giving, meaning we want to be able to see a direct correlation between our gift and a good social deed being done. If I'm going to give to you, I want to be able to see with mine own eyes what good social deed this gift accomplishes. So, for example, uh, over the years, we've noticed that when we do like a a specific uh, social kind of good deed fundraising request, which we do frequently here at Vista, we're glad to do so, uh, we've noticed a couple things. First off, we tend to blow our goal out of the water every single time we blow the goal out of the water, which is awesome. Generosity is always fantastic. But then we've also noticed that there are a lot of people uh, who will give to these kind of specific one-off social good deed fundraising requests who do not otherwise give to the church like at all. Now we've got people who've been coming to Vista for years. We pass the faith on to their children, their members here, who literally have never given anything. And yet when presented with a specific one-off social good deed fundraising request, they'll give. I've actually got a list I'm going to put up on the screen of names. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, If I ever want it to be my last Sunday, I'll throw that list up there and go out in a blaze of glory. I'm just kidding. There's no list. Actually, there probably is, but I don't have it. Um, This is actually a phenomenon, though, that's much broader than um, the Vista, uh, illustrated by the fact that this is really interesting. Okay, so in 1995, 45% of charitable giving went to churches. So, overwhelming majority of them. Last year, only 27% of charitable giving went to churches. Isn't that interesting? Now, this is not intended uh, as an accusation, but rather it is... An observation, a very honest one, a factual one, about the way the modern Christian mind tends to think when it comes to giving. Due to this profound convergence of of factors, many of us harbor, most of us harbor this deep and not even fully conscious skepticism that money given to the church is money that is responsibly given to God. All that to say, when faced with a decision to financially support the conservation of the church's worship, witness, and mission in the world, or make a specific gift in support of a specific social good deed, we increasingly choose the specific social good deed because that feels more responsible to us. Now, Here's where things get a little bit tricky. On my end, because it it would feel really gross for me to stand up here and be like, shame, 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 shame. Shame on all of you for not giving what you should to this institution that funds my salary because I can barely afford the note on my second Bentley. How am I gonna get this fleet of Bentleys if y'all don't step your game up? And so rather than doing that, What I would like to do instead is just submit for your consideration, okay? Submit for your consideration the proposal that the church, Big C Church, that her worship, her witness, her mission in the world, her overall communal life, and yes, even after accounting for her many, many failures and flaws, that the church is the greatest social good deed to which any of us 
could ever possibly contribute. And that's what I just want to put in front of you. Y'all, over the last two weeks, we, we baptized 90 people here at the Vista. 90 people. Yeah. I don't know if you were here for it, but man, it was, it was amazing. Young kids, older people, you know, men and women, parents baptizing kids. I lose it every time a parent baptizes a kid, man. Friends baptizing friends, husbands baptizing wives, wives baptizing husbands, black, white, brown, you name it, baby. And it was here. And look, I, I don't know the like altruism algorithm that cleanly nets out the social good deed utility of a baptized person. I'd love to see the equation if you got it. But y'all, I would be willing to bet, I would stake my life on the fact that there is no social good deed that is better than baptism. There is no greater contribution to the world's healing and wholeness than baptism, than people pledging their loyalty to King Jesus, being filled with God's spirit, and then going and walking the world, loving God and loving people by living and sharing the gospel. Like what? What do you can compare to that, man? Boy Scouts? Little League? All great, you know, participate in all, but I mean, seriously, that, that's what you can compare it to. And so just seriously, I don't know how you don't believe that if you're not a Christian. And so if you don't believe that, then like in all love, hopefully y'all know me, it's kind of playful here, but like in all love, then man, go find something you can believe in more. Nobody holding you hostage here. Go find something you can believe in more. But good luck with that. Good luck with that. Because the church's track record, they're filled with black marks because it's filled with people like you and me. The church's track record is pretty unmatched by any and every measure of human flourishing. Y'all, the church has been here since the dawn of civilization, patiently drawing creation back toward its maker. And she's still gonna be here when you and me and every other cause and institution is long gone extinct because she is the cause that makes all of the causes possible. She is the mission that makes all of the missions possible. And she is still the center of God's action in the world for the sake of of the world, okay? Just submit for your consideration. Now, there are many questions that I, I haven't had time to answer. You know, questions like, well, okay, fair enough, but is tithing 10%, is that still like some sort of law for Christians or not? You know, reasonable people disagree on that one. You, you can make a really good case for it. You can make a reasonable case that there should be some flex in it. I'd actually recommend this uh, couplet of companion articles over at the Gospel Coalition. I don't recommend everything they do, um, but it's got some good stuff here. You can go read, do your own homework, you know, prayerfully sort through it, and whatever percentage you do land on, whatever that is, I do feel comfortable saying that it should probably be a percentage greater than zero. I have a word from the Lord on that one. As is often the case, C.S. Lewis perhaps said it best. I love this. He says, I don't believe that one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they're too small. Listen to this last line. There ought to be things we should like to do and yet cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. That's one of those things that really sucks to hear, but you know it's probably true, right? Yeah, it's probably right. And then second, I haven't answered this last question of like, well, okay, 
But like what percentage of your tithe, whatever percentage that is you land on, what percentage should be given like to the church? And then what percentage should be given to other charitable good organizations that exist, you know, here, around the world, etc.? Uh, I don't have a word from the Lord on that. I never pretend to have one when I don't. Beyond the word that I have already shared, which is that even with all of the necessary qualifications and confessions of failure, the church is the single greatest long-term systemic social good deed to which any of us could ever possibly contribute. And so our giving should probably reflect that in some way. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of today. We pause and we remind ourselves, as the psalmist remind us, Psalm 24, verse 1, that the earth is yours and everything it contains. Everything is a very big, big, big term that does not leave a whole lot for us. And that's because, God, we don't have anything. We are utterly dependent creatures. We cannot make ourselves. We cannot sustain ourselves. We are here because and only because a good and gracious God has decided to make us and sustain us and redeem us. And we spend our whole lives fighting that. Trying to curate this illusion that we are in control and we can make everything work our way. But rather than fighting it, God, we pray that you would just help us to surrender to our dependence, which we can joyfully do because we have a good father who loves us and freely shares all things with us. God, also just want to pause and, excuse me, we pray a prayer for the church, for Vista, sure, but for the big C church spread out across space and time. God, she is very flawed because she's, She's filled with sinners. She was made for sinners. And that doesn't give her a complete pass, but it makes sense that she would be flawed. That's what she's here for, to help sinners find a place to belong and become whole. And so we pray for the church and all of her imperfection that you would nevertheless help her to see her beauty, her constancy. God, we pray that we would pass on a healthy church to our children and to our grandchildren, to our grandchildren's children's children that you would help us to be a part of that good work, that we would see past our own noses and be a part of something that's been here right before we were here and that's still going to be here long after we're gone. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.